Yo, yo, what's going on? Jason Bay here. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. If you're uh, listening to this for the first time, welcome. Appreciate you uh, tuning in. This uh, podcast is for reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings with prospects, but hate having to send hundreds of cold emails that go unanswered or making dozens of cold calls that also go unanswered or are very uncomfortable because you don't know exactly what to say to get the prospect hooked. If you're finding yourself in either one of those situations or leading people in those situations, you're definitely in the right place. Today, we're talking to someone that is a friend of mine, Leslie Vinette, and she is a new business development director at a company called Procurement Leaders. So I get that there's some irony there and that salespeople notoriously say bad things about procurement people, and she's on a mission at Procurement Leaders to, to really change that and also help procurement teams deal with that as well. And today, we're gonna talk about enterprise prospecting. Let's get to it. So enterprise prospecting is a, it's a bit of a different beast from stuff that's pretty transactional. Typically with enterprise, and when I say enterprise, because there's so many different definitions of, of enterprise Typically, the way companies will segment, you know, mid-market versus enterprise is, you know, a thousand plus employees, or maybe I'm selling into a Fortune 1000, or maybe uh, sometimes people break it down by project size as well. So it could be 50 to 100K plus, and then sort of everywhere in between. So typically, when you're selling to a company that's a thousand plus employees, where things start to get complicated is that the C-suite and the VPs have a much more strategic role at a company that has 5,000 employees, let's say, than a company that has 200. They're much more removed from the day-to-day operations. And when we're doing this type of outbound into these enterprise orgs, what becomes really, really important is having an enterprise-level conversation with them, showing them that we can provide insights and expertise that will help them do their job because it's very strategic in what they're doing. So if I were to give you an example, it's the difference between me coming in and approaching a chief revenue officer at a 100 person company where I have to talk a little bit more tactical about how we help companies maybe overcome call reluctance, get more meetings through the phone, et cetera, versus a chief revenue officer at a company that's like 5,000 employees. They're gonna to wanna to hear more about how to operationalize things across their leadership team and what are the big strategic things they might be missing in the approach versus the tactics. Two very different things. Uh, Leslie is one of the most talented folks that I've seen at this. She's not only done a lot of this herself, but she coaches reps and, and has a team of reps that are doing this. And we're gonna talk about three really big things. So one is the mindset behind this type of outbound. So how to be more buyer-centric and really how to come in with the mentality of earning the right to that person's calendar, especially those you know, C-suite type folks. What we're gonna talk about also is how to add relevance. So a big part of that is how to know what these people are thinking and what's a priority for them so you can do the third part, add insights. So she's gonna talk about how we add high level insights that are actionable and also how we can do that in a unique way by sharing insights that only our company, the company that you're selling from, would have based on the experience you have working with all of your clients. So she has hundreds of procurement leaders that they work with at their company. 
And one thing that they can share is, you know, things that they've learned serving these people and working with them. You're not going to find that insight anywhere else except for the company that she works at. So this one's going to be action-packed with some goodies. I learned a lot from this. Before we get to the episode, if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, Jason, I just want the free stuff, that's all good. Podcast, we got episodes coming out every week. We're running webinars on a monthly basis. Get content on LinkedIn on a daily basis that you, you can tune into. If you're looking for a little bit more support, and maybe you're thinking, hey, I don't have time to just sit around and listen to podcasts and watch webinars all day and like read books, and you want some support in implementing a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, you should definitely look into Outbound Squad. That's exactly the reason why I started it. We have, at the time of recording this, about 45 reps in there. And these are people doing full cycle enterprise sales for the most part and selling stuff that's mid-market. So they're selling deals that are 30 to 100K plus, one to three months plus sales cycles. They're prospecting into the C-suite. We just got a bunch of badasses in there. So if you want to be surrounded by a community like that, get world-class coaching from myself and, and our other coaches, and also get access to the best content out there on how to outbound, how to get meetings. We also help with discovery, demos, that sort of thing. If all of that sounds in line with what you're looking for, send me an email, jason at blissfulprospecting.co, and just put squad in the subject line, and I'll share some more information with you. It's application only. I'm very picky about who we let in, and not everyone makes it through the selection process. So if you're looking to level up and also be around other folks that want to level up, send me an email, jason at blissfulprospecting.co, put squad in the subject line, and I'll get you some more information. All right, let's get to the episode. So I got to know, because I ask every guest this, uh, what was your favorite childhood breakfast? Would you, would you eat as a kid? Oh my God, I'm like not a breakfast person. Maybe like a traditional American breakfast, just with bacon and eggs and toast. Okay. I, that's so lame. I want it to be like a really fun, like fruity cereal. Or, oh no, here it is. Here it is. When okay. I was a kid, we had raspberry bushes in the backyard. And every morning my brother and I would wake up and we would run outside mm-hmm. because there was only enough raspberries. I mean, we could have shared, but theoretically there were only enough raspberries for one person. And then we'd put those mm-hmm. in Rice Krispies. So that was probably my favorite childhood breakfast, like freshly picked raspberries and Rice Krispies. Were you one of those kids? Did you add extra sugar to the Rice Krispies? <laughs> 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 Okay, now we got that out of the way. We know we know what your guilty pleasure is. I still have all my teeth, luckily, so. I want to talk to you about, you know, really the topic for today, We right before we hit record, was, hey, how do we expect at an enterprise level? And there's kind of extremes with outbound that are kind of interesting. You have, like, super transactional stuff that's S&B. You know, I'm selling something that's maybe a couple hundred bucks a month. I don't really play too much in that territory. And then you got kind of the stuff in the middle where you're not reaching out to you know, huge enterprises or maybe working with Fortune 100 or 500. It's more of a mid-market kind of thing. And then I feel like the enterprise game is a completely different game, both from an outbound standpoint and a sales standpoint. Obviously, a lot of the fundamentals and stuff apply, but I really just want to pick your brain on this. And, and I think a good place to start would be, like, how did you get into enterprise sales like how did you how did you kind of cut your teeth i guess so to speak with enterprise sales yeah i cut my teeth uh, in my very first job out of college super transactional sale like one call close at most mm-hmm. two call close 24 hour sales cycle oh, wow. to fortune 1000 c suite and then to double down on that the portfolio i owned was 
the finance portfolio. So it was okay. chief financial officers and chief tax officers. And it was during the Great Recession. That sounds like a fun bunch to talk to you, huh? Yeah, it was. It was just cold calling. We we had no inbound funnel and we weren't doing any like social selling, any um, you know, email uh, communication to, to generate meetings. So it was a learning experience, particularly during the recession, because it was, you know, 200, 250 like cold calls a day. Oh, wow. You'd maybe reach four people. Two of them would curse you out. You know, one of them would just hang up on you politely and maybe you'd get one pitch out in 200 cold calls. So in that environment, you have to learn quickly. And part of that is, I know that I have maybe not even like the eight to 30 seconds. I maybe have three seconds you know. before this person decides to hang up on me or, or curse me out. So uh, how do I utilize that time to get in the five words that are going to be most valuable, most exciting, uh, most uh, uh, you know emotional for that person I'm speaking to? Oh, that's interesting. So it was mostly all phone work, it sounds like. And then... Not a lot of research, I'm assuming, up front. Was it kind of a smile and dial kind of situation where you just called through as many people as quickly as you could, knew very little about them, and it was just give the pitch and see if they bite? Yeah, I don't think there was a lot of smiling, but there was definitely <laughs> a lot of dialing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was very like old school boiler room mentality. Yeah. We didn't even have computers at our desks. So you would go home, you do all your research, write all your leads out on like a legal pad or print on, and then oh, you wow. just sit there and, you know, flip from page to page and, and dial through them and hope to, hope to catch anybody. Like couldn't leave voicemails that was against the rules. So obviously knowing what I know now, it was just an insanely toxic environment, but I had to learn very, very quickly mm -hmm. um, how to build value and catch the ear of the C-suite in a matter of seconds. So, okay, I got to ask you about this before we get to the mindset. What did you say to people to catch their attention in the first, if you remember, in the first five or 10 seconds? It's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> Name dropping of other businesses that we were working with that worked extraordinarily well. Yeah. And... We did a bunch of research, so we knew what those maybe two or three topics were that were most likely to resonate. So that's what I always led with. I always used like the concert analogy. If your friend invites you to a concert, what do you ask first? Either who's playing or who else is going. Yeah. Right? Love that. So though those were the things that I always led with because I know that's what they cared most about. What I never led with was like, hi, my name is Leslie, or this is the company I'm calling from, or I had to cut all that fluff and get right into the meat and potatoes of something that had the potential to, to you know, catch their interest. So would that just be, hey, Leslie, I was reaching out because so-and-so? Yeah. Hi, Jason, giving you a ring because I'm working with ABC, naming like huge brands. Um, hi, Jason, giving you a ring because I'm working with ABC companies on their ESG agenda. And I know that's a, a topic that you can't afford to get wrong either. And then I would just bulldoze right through the rest of at least like two minutes of a pitch, mm. hoping that they didn't hang up on me before I asked like my final or my first question, which was a assumptive. Like, so I assume that, that you want to hear more, right? I love that for an intro, though, because it's the concert analogy is such a wonderful one. But you grab attention right away, which even if someone listens through the first 30 seconds of a, a cold call, it doesn't mean they're necessarily paying attention. 
you know, but if you name drop the companies and then the thing that they're likely to focus on, that's a pretty cool way to start a call. Yeah. So if we kind of fast forward to where you're at now, what have you picked up or learned about more of the mental and the mindsets before we get to some of the strategies, the mindset behind how to approach enterprise? What are some of the key things that you should understand from a mindset standpoint? Yeah, I think the value piece is still there. Like you have to lead with value and you have to lead with value quickly. Mm -hmm. That might be the only thing I've carried forward a decade later. A lot of it, Jason, is that customer obsession and being very buyer centric at every turn. When I look at how I'm overcoming objections or, you know, what my talk track is, what's going into my emails, what's going into my social messages. Is it about me? Is it something that I think is important or I think makes me or my company look cool? Or is it about the buyer? Is it something that's going to bring them value every sentence they read? So really having that buyer-centric mindset has been incredibly important. And I would say closely tied to that is maybe just a little bit more respect for the process and understanding that there's a, a better way. I mean, certainly we know there's a better way to get things done than 200 dials a day to catch one person. Um, but even though it's really difficult for me, difficult, I think for salespeople in general, being patient while you earn the right to somebody's inbox. And then once you see that they you, you, you have that relevant, credible, valuable content, and maybe they're opening it and you have some light calls to action in there, still being patient as you build up to stronger CTAs to earn the right to their calendar. And I think it's this process of gaining trust, gaining credibility, and earning the right to ultimately win their business down the line. Yeah, I want to, guys, there's so much to dig into there, but the buyer-centric piece, I'm 100% on the same page with you, but I want to get, what does that mean to you? Because I think a lot of people say they're buyer-centric, but when you look at it in action, there's something missing. You know, between they aren't quite connecting the dots there. What does it really mean to be buyer centric? What's an acid test, I guess, to know if I'm a rep, to know if I'm really thinking about the buyer and what they need and then also executing on that? What are some things I might be able to ask myself for an acid test? Yeah, yeah. Great question. I I think one of the easiest things to do um, is to look at your emails or or look at your talk track. And if it says, hi, I'm Leslie Vanette's calling from ABC Company. We do. Yeah. And if your first couple sentences in any piece of outreach that you are doing is like your name, your company, and then what we do is, that's not buyer-centric. And I, I, I see that a lot, like a, a lot, a lot, a lot. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, folks still lead with that. So, you know, I would say a really good litmus test is maybe just to ask yourself, is this relevant to my prospect? Like, is, is it uniquely relevant to my prospect? Not, is it personalized? Like, hi, Jason, I saw you went to college. That is nice. I also went to college. So what we sell is and not relevant because they work for a marketing agency and you sell to marketing agencies. But like, I saw that you made a post about, you know, needing to, you know, whatever it is, but like, you know, really using those pieces of relevance to make it about them instead of about you. Yeah. I think what you mentioned there specifically around the solution is really important because that's what I get a lot when I train companies. When I first start working with the reps, 
when I start asking them questions, what's in it for the buyer? What they'll immediately gravitate towards is, well, we can help them with this thing. Mm-hmm. We can help them with that thing. And it's it's not getting a layer of removed from your solution. And it's, I don't know what you think, but I think the best prospecting is when you don't talk about the solution at all. Yep. You just talk about an outcome that is related to what they care about. You don't even talk about a solution or features benefits. You you automatically, and I'm assuming, because I have I've not done any enterprise sales. You know, the stuff that I sell now, the biggest project that we'll get, well, the average one is 30, 40K for a six-week training. And then it's, you know, every now and then I'll get, like, I got a six-figure deal I'm working right now that's like an ongoing engagement, you know, for something. Mm -hmm. So it's not really enterprise in the way that you have done enterprise. So I'm asking just from your perspective, like when you start talking about your solution, don't you kind of position yourself as a in the buyer's mindset as just a, hey, you're just another company that does X, Y, Z. We already have that. Like you don't get the conversation started at a higher level. If you start talking about what your thing is and how you help people and features, you kind of get in this. Yeah, a little, a little bit of both. I mean, I think fabs is something when I'm training that I constantly come back to, but it's the, the B piece, right? I'm like, yeah, we know what the features are and you're likely very good at illustrating the advantages of those features, but you're not walking it through. Like you say to something, say to somebody, oh, our software is twice as accurate as Bob's software, but you're not walking through to that last piece that says, and what that means to you is you can spend one less hour a day on this activity And instead, you can spend that time on more strategic work that is going to increase your revenues. So I think folks are really, really strong on being able to illustrate the advantage of their product, service, solution, whatever, but they have a really difficult time, or or maybe they are too quick to assume that the prospect sees the light at the end of the tunnel the same way that they do. Like, well, obviously they know that's going to save them time. Obviously they know that's going to save them money, reduce risk, help them get their next job, whatever it is. And so the result is that we don't always walk through the whole fab equation. We stop at the A um, and the the B piece is the most important. Like you said, it's the what's in it for them piece. And that's what's going to, the benefit piece. Benefits. Okay. That's yeah. I haven't heard of fab. So it's features, advances, benefits. Yeah. Features, advantages, and benefits. Okay. So yeah, it's the, the what's in it for them piece. You're spot on. You also mentioned something I've been on one lately too, is make the implicit explicit. I, I'm forgetting the book that they, it's a, it was something my wife prescribed that I, that I read. It was, it probably had to do with listening better, <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, the implicit, all of those things. You're totally right. I have several folks that I work with where it's wasn't that obvious? Like they're almost worried about saying something that would offend the person because they think it's so obvious to the prospect and they don't want to look stupid or offend the person by stating something very obviously like Mm -hmm. it can save you this or help you do this specific thing and spelling that out. Do you ever see that or run across that with with reps that that you've trained where they're just worried about being too obvious or something, which is I don't know. I don't think like that really. So it's, it's a bit of a weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Absolutely. There's a, like a fear element maybe Mm -hmm. where I'm just an SDR. I'm just an AE and I'm selling to the CFO of a fortune 250 company. Of course, he'll be able to track the same outcome. Yeah. 
that I'm trying to imply. Uh, it's quite the opposite. Why are you asking that person to do the work? Like, why are you asking them to get to their own assumption? Lay it out for them and then don't just lay it out. Yeah. Lay it out and repeat it two more times before you get off the phone so that you are really, because they don't care about the features on the disco call. I mean, like later on, if they're serious, sure, we can dig into the, the features. They don't, they're not going to remember that list of advantages. But when they hang up, they are going to remember, ooh, I might be able to buy back eight hours of time if I do this. And that's going to allow me to attend Tommy's little league baseball game on Thursday, instead of having to stay late in the office. Like they are going to remember those pieces that have the personal impact on them. Yeah. I love that. Before we get to some of the you know strategies and stuff too, I'd love to hear your perspective on what makes someone in the C-suite want to take a meeting with a rep. So someone that they haven't gone inbound and said, hey, Leslie, I want to talk to you. Why would someone in a suit when they already probably have a solution that's that's getting the job done? You know, they probably have something or maybe you're selling something unique that they don't know that they need or whatever that is. But why would a VP or someone in a C-suite even take a meeting with someone that reached out to them cold like this? I think that would be a good kind of place to start because this is the thing that I think if you haven't been in the C-suite, like I haven't been in the C-suite at a Fortune 100 company. I don't know what that's like <laughs> to do. You know what I mean? But like if we're getting in the head of a buyer, what would make someone like that want to take a meeting with with a rep? I think that goes back to the relevance because I think it's different, for, right? There's not a reason. And if we fall into the trap of thinking every C-suite officer at every company is going to buy for the same reason, then we're moving away immediately from that buyer-centric mindset, right? Yeah. I think it's twofold, like what's going to make them be interested in the product and what's going to make them take the meeting themselves when they have eight direct reports who are literally responsible for evaluating vendors. So it goes back to the what's in it for them. I have primarily myself and, and through sales team builder supported like professional services firms, you know, agency work, like SaaS pass, that sort of environment. So generally with that type of sale, there's some sort of insight you can share that they would not have access to without you. What's an example of that? Oh, I mean, in my current role, it's really easy because we have this network of 300 chief procurement officers from like some of the biggest and sexiest brands out there. So it's really easy in this role to say, I just got off of a call with 60 group CPOs. Do you want to hear the one thing all of them said was going to be on their agenda for 2022? It's, it's kind of hard to say no to that. Um, but even if you don't work for an organization where it's that easy, there's still going to be threads, right? Like, hey, Jason, I just got off the, you know, I just got off a call with maybe name your biggest competitor. I just got off a call with so-and-so and he shared that this is something that's really working well for him to renew his clients, book bigger deal sizes, go from 30 to 100K. Do you want to get on the call and I can share how I helped him go from 40 to 100K deal size? So, you know, those pieces that are, are something special that they're not going to have visibility on by just Googling something that only you have to give to them. Yeah. So as a rep, I love this, by the way, because this is a, I don't know, have you, 
read or heard of the book Eat Their Lunch by Anthony Iannarino? No, I mean, I know Anthony, but no, I haven't read that one. Okay. It's about competitive displacement. Mm -hmm. Like how do you get a meeting with someone that's already using your competitor, so to speak? And it's really about how do we create insights and reasons for people to buy. It's it's totally buyer-centric because no one wants to take a first meeting and just get hammered with questions the entire time, right? There's kind of a give and take. Do you recommend that, and have you had to create your own insights before? I think this is where people struggle the chief procurement officer thing, I know you're being teed up with a lot of that stuff, but I'm assuming you still had to do some work to to find out what the insight was and to gather some themes. It wasn't like just handed to you and you wouldn't just run through a 30-page white paper with a prospect, right? <laughs> I'm assuming there's some sort of process that you use, but for someone that maybe isn't being spoon-fed that by, and I'm not saying you were spoon-fed, but someone that has a marketing department that's really good that's saying, hey, lead with this. How do you uh, how do you suggest someone maybe puts together some of their own sites? What are some things that you would look for? How do you how do you think about that part? Yeah, excellent question, Jason. And you're totally right. I'm not going to go through an 80 page strategy report with them. I'm not going through the 30 page marketing deck with them and hoping that they glean one insight. I want to be really prescriptive. It, you know, again, it goes back to relevance. Like it can't be something that I think is cool. It has to be something that I'm really sure they're going to have an emotional response to. Challenger, obviously, everybody knows Challenger. Challenger sale, I thought, was just very okay for me, which was kind of an unpopular opinion. Me too. I feel the same way. Challenger customer, though, I loved. And a huge part of Challenger customer is going from like commercial share, commercial insight to actionable insight. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I really challenge the listeners to think about. Is it actionable? Are you sharing something generic? Like 68% of sales executives wish they had a better tech stack. Like, okay, like maybe I didn't know it was 68%, but I probably could have guessed most salespeople want a better tech stack. Or are you saying that 92% of sales executives say that if their company does not increase the investment in lead generation software, that they're going to start looking for a new job? Like that's now something that somebody has to take action around. So make it relevant and make it actionable and make it something that they can't Google. Like make it something that is a unique insight that you are sharing with them. And it, you know, becomes like a deposit, a, a gift from you that's unrelated to whether or not they buy. So would an example of this then be, so like for me, let's say for example, would something be around, hey, if I'm reaching out to, I don't know, let's just pretend I'm reaching out to Zoom. And I've worked with other SaaS companies and specifically worked with you know, the AEs which a lot of people are trying to get to prospect right now. So if I reached out to someone at that company and basically the promise was was that, hey, we've worked with a lot of AE teams similar to yours, similar in size, and everything that uh, these companies know about their AEs is they want them to prospect more, but here are the three things that keep them from doing that. They don't have a playbook. They aren't making the time to do it. Uh, I, I don't know, some other random thing. Mm-hmm. Like that would be something I could have a conversation around that's, hey, they don't do outbound because they have zero direction on how to do it. They aren't offered the same playbooks that the BDR team has offered. Like, is that what you're talking about? Like something very tangible like that? For sure, 100%. And then if we talk about like 
earning the right to a C-suite's calendar, like walk all the way through that. And in conversations with those AEs, we also know that because they don't have a BDR playbook and they're trying to do it from scratch, it's costing them an extra six hours a week that they're not client facing. And if, you know, your team is the same 30% average that, you know, XYZ teams are, that adds up to this amount of hours a year. And if you do an average FTE cost by that many hours, that means that your team is wasting $210,000 a year simply because they don't have the BDR playbook, yeah. right? And and then at that point, a CP or, you know, chief sales officer, I guess in this case, would be like, oh, that's something I need to take action around. Yeah. And then I love how you connected that too. I just want to point that out for the people listening too, is that you connected, you took what I said, like, and took it way further to a result that that chief sales officer or chief revenue officer is like something that they would care about. You basically take this thing, Gary Vaynerchuk, I think talked about this a lot where it was, uh, you know, the dirt in the clouds, you know, kind of thing. You don't want to spend time in the middle, you either want to be in the dirt or in the clouds or whatever. And I think a lot of it is, you know, with above the line and below the line to use Skip Miller's, you know, sort of uh, philosophy there. If we're talking about below the line stuff to an above the line, prospect, playbooks, all of that stuff. And we don't extrapolate, I guess, uh, it up to their level to a result that they're probably driving, caring about. That's kind of that that last part that's really important. So we take the insight and to backtrack what you said earlier, you know, what would they care about? It's the insight. And then you're you're trying to find a way to connect that to something that through some research you would find is a big initiative. And with a publicly traded company, they kind of talk a lot about how much they want to grow. Yeah. So is that kind of how you would connect the whole picture there is you're working on this right now and I can see this is important to you. And here is some insight I can share that helps drive results in the area that you care about. Is that kind of the formula, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it? Yeah. And that's like an incredible hack because what you can be 100% sure that every single CEO cares about if you're calling into the enterprise is growth. Yeah. And that means any other person in the C-suite that you're calling on has a responsibility to deliver against that growth agenda. Yeah. So that's a like an excellent, excellent piece to, to hit on, Jason. Um, because you know, maybe people are just calling into the enterprise for the first time that are listening. Mm-hmm. If you're struggling, you're like, why just what do I talk about? How how do I figure out what that insect start with growth? Yeah. That's that's the silver bullet. That's a really good one. Beyond that, every organization in you know in the the Fortune 1000 uh, are going to have CEO statements. Yeah, and I like to just go through the CEO statements. Um, we were talking about this off camera, uh, but one of the things a lot of CEOs are making right now are public commitments around. Uh, corporate social responsibility. So things like sustainability and things like supplier diversity. So if there's any way you can tie those into your pitch, which pretty much every product has at least some sort of either sustainability or diversity play some way, like you can make that link if you think through it, that's going to be something that resonates with your prospect, right? Here's a way to impress your CEO. And like you said, here's how you take it from the dirt this is what it's going to look like. They need playbooks. They need training. They need time management. Here's the benefit when we walk through it. And here's why it matters to you, the CRO. Yeah, I love this. What do you say to, because when presented with this, sometimes 
well, a lot of the time I get more backlash than I do uh, anything else because people are like, oh, this is a great strategy. And you get me, you get way more meetings doing it like this. So many more meetings than scheduling a demo. But the backlash that I get is that if we're doing this, Leslie, they, so I'm going to set up a meeting for the AE and it's not being qualified yet, you know, <laughs> or yeah. I'm not going to be compensated for that. Or, hey, if my AE is actually not going to deliver insights when they talk to them, I'm a little worried about setting this prospect up for a you know 45 minute call and they get nothing from it besides mm. a demo. Yeah. Maybe this is more of an org level, you know, kind of change that needs to happen. But uh, how do you respond to that? Yeah, balancing act for sure, yeah. right? I think often it's easier to just have a deep collaboration between the SDR team and the AE team than trying to like make it a CRO initiative and, and get it like top down. Like just let's just talk. So make sure to collaborate with your SDRs. SDRs, make sure to take ownership and hold your AEs accountable. And, you know, I think part of the balance, Jason, is that we are salespeople. We're not executive advisors or consultants, right? So we shouldn't be delivering 45-minute advisory calls, but we should be showing up to every single call with a handful of those actionable insights in our pocket that we know are relevant, that we know our prospect's going to have an emotional response to, ready to share. We also need to be transparent that our goal is for them to become a client. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that they're gonna become a client at the end of this call, maybe not at the end of this year, maybe not ever. So it's, it's not, I'm only having this conversation with you to get your money. It's I'm having this conversation with you because I want to understand if it makes sense to, to mutual plan around partnership. And the best way to understand that is to share these insights and see if our, our mindsets are aligned to see if your vision for your function is aligned to what we're offering. So I think you can strike that balance where there's still clarity, where you're not doing like a bait and switch. It's an advisory call. Here's my deck. But you know, still leading with advisory, still leading with insights. And that doesn't mean it's not a commercial conversation. It is, but you can do it in a way where it doesn't feel like a commercial conversation, I think. Yeah, hundred percent. I've never had, cause this is how I prospect. I've never said, Hey, let's hop on a call so we can talk about our training. Right. Never, ever the call to action. It's always, I'm working with similar companies and I'm seeing these few things work really well and I'd love to share it with you, you know, kind of thing. But that first call, they never ask me to see anything. They don't ask for a demo of the coursework or the platform or what kind of homework are you going to give or what does the, they, they never, we have a discovery conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I think people, you know, buyers are not stupid either. They kind of understand if I hop on a That's it. salesperson. <laughs> there's not a hidden agenda here unless the person makes it hidden, but I still know what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, yep. no shit, right? I mean, like, I think people don't give buyers <laughs> enough credit in this area. They're not stupid. <laughs> That's spot on. That's spot on. And and um, I don't know if if listeners, I don't know what the timeline of release is, but you had that webinar um, with our, our friend Megan Mishek recently. I don't know what the timeline is on this release date. <laughs> but one of the things I, I loved was that she point blank said, you should not be doing demos on your disco call, period. I don't care what type of product you sell. I don't care how many SaaS organizations tell me we need to be doing at least some demo on our first call. The first call is a discovery call. It's a tell, not a show. And 
I, I just 1000% agree. Shocking. Like two of my favorite people get on a webinar together. I'm in the background snapping the entire time, <laughs> but you know, I think it's important enough to, to bring up again yeah. that we should give our buyers more credit. They see my, I'm a sales director. They can see my title. They know that they're getting on a call with a salesperson. They know that I obviously have a target and a quota to, to hit. Um, so let's give them a little bit more credit, but uh, let's not lead with that aggressive sales mentality. Let's lead with just a conversation to see if next steps are a mutual fit. Because there's also the other side where I've talked to clients and been like, you know, I don't want you to be my client or you know what? We actually aren't the right vendor for you. I'm going to recommend somebody else or we're the right vendor for you, but in like six months when you get done with this project. So, you know, I think starting with that buyer-centric discovery and saving the commercial conversation for a little bit later increases that trust, increases that transparency, that credibility. And like, I can see why you might get pushback from those SDRs, from their those AEs, because there's a lot of pressure on us for forecasting and for pipelines and for tight sales cycles. But the response is, would you rather have like 50 really high quality meetings that you know, ultimately closed in a maybe slightly longer timeline? Or would you rather have, you know, like a, a hundred meetings where I, I went through my band, but all of the people were so turned off that they, you know, were closed the moment they picked up the phone and ended the conversation with like, sure, send something and I'll let you know. Like it's, you know, what what type of, of relationship and rapport we trying to build with the prospect um, that's going to, you know, ultimately result in a close or at least a relationship or maybe a referral or maybe they buy at their next organization. So what I'm trying to say is I think often we're very like short-term yeah. focused in our strategies and how we communicate with our buyers. Yeah. It's like what happened to getting on a call with someone and now not being the right time and actually having to sell and help them figure out, does it make sense to change? You can't do that in a 15 minute qual call. You know, you just, you just can't do that. Mm-hmm. I want to backtrack slightly here from an outbound standpoint, because then we kind of know, hey, what the approach is and then what we're trying to get. Um, when you go to sequence and, and all of that other stuff, what are you asking for in the first couple interactions that you have, whether that be through email, phone? What are you asking for? Is Are you just sharing insights and saying, hey, do you want to talk about this? Like, what, what is the call to action in the first couple times that you reach out to someone? What And what does that look like over time? Yeah, so I'm a massive fan of the CTA light. And I when I write it out, I like to spell light, L-I-T-E. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, in the CTA lights, and actually, I, I'm almost positive it's gong. Um, has a great workshop uh, worksheet on CTA lights mm-hmm. that I found and I send it off to people all the time. But those CTA lights are things like, would it be worth learning more? Is this of interest? Is this the right topic to send you updates on? Or is there something else that's more important? It's not, would you like to meet? Here's my Calendly link. Uh, so I'm a huge... <laughs> I'm a huge fan of uh, leading with CTA lights, not such a huge fan of dropping unsolicited calendar links into to messages. You actually have a couple of sequences that I've stolen, like some of your double tap sequences. There was one I think you did a post on, maybe it was this year that was like a f- first five tap sequence. So, I've, so just, you know, your stuff that I've taken and used yeah. is, the, is the stuff cool. that I really like. 
I really love doing an email voicemail um, double tap to start off any cadence. Like I don't care what the topic is or what the ICP is. I find that that works really well. I rely really heavily on social in a lot of my cadences. LinkedIn. Yeah. Like LinkedIn only. Social like LinkedIn primarily? Uh, when I was at the yeah. startup, we, we did some stuff with Twitter and Facebook, but it was a different audience. When you're at enterprise, like LinkedIn is, is likely going to be your, your best social channel. But I would say like, if I was going to say three things, incorporating social into my cadences in the form of LinkedIn outreach, always starting every single cadence with that email, voicemail, double tap. And I don't, I say voicemail, not phone call because I don't expect them to pick up. I'm calling to leave a voicemail and the voicemail doesn't say, call me back. The voicemail says, I just sent you an email. Here's the subject line. And it goes back to that concert analogy. I just sent you an email about the work I'm doing with ABC company. And then I would say the third piece is starting slowly with those CTA lights that are literally just like, if you'd like to read more of the article, click here. And that's your entire call to action is to click to link an article. And maybe it's not even an article from your company. One of the best performing emails that I have right now that I add into most of my cadences, the subject line is Reuters uh, hyphen resilience. And then it's just a Reuters article that I think is awesome. And I think people would enjoy. So it's definitely that process of making deposits first, building credibility and excitement And, you know, like we talked about earlier in our conversation, earning the right to the inbox and then ultimately earning the right to the calendar. So how long would you send over resources like that before asking for any interest in speaking further? So I've tested a few different ones, like through Sales Loft. What I found works best is being focused less on timeline and being focused more on their buying cycle. So at the enterprise level, you'll find that it's pretty rare to have rolling budgets or leftover budgets for anything that's more like five grand. And my average price point is over 50. Well, total contract value over a hundred. So I really need to align with their fiscal year. So like CPG and pharma, more likely to have an H1 end of fiscal year, like FS, much more likely to have that, you know, Q4 fiscal year. So I mean, I have an FS campaign that I've already been running for four months right now, and I don't build in strong CTAs until next month. Like, I don't build in actual requests for meetings until five months in, because that is the right time when they start considering either renewing with their current vendor or adding an additional vendor in, and then as it gets to the end of October, where they're making those decisions, then it gets a lot more aggressive with phone calls and more aggressive CTAs because it's like, okay, it's now or never. Like, talk to me or else I know I won't likely have a chance to, to, to win your business for a year. So I've had more success focusing less on like what I feel like a cadence length should be and more about... I'm just going to continue to nurture you and earn that right to your calendar so that when it's the exact right time and you're buying signal, I'm teed up to have that that privilege of getting to meet with you. So you're planting seeds, seeds. knowing that, hey, I'm probably not going to talk to them for five minutes. 
but uh, I'm going to plant these seeds so that, uh, <laughs> you know, I at least when I go to ask for a meeting, I'm not a complete stranger. Yeah, lots of seeds. And that can't be the only strategy, right? If every single one of your prospects has a Q4 end of year, that can't be the only time you hope to meet with people. You need to build in other campaigns. Like some of the ones we were talking about before we hit record that I really like to do is go find those CEO commitments and then find lists that other organizations have put them on. Like we've been doing a lot of stuff around corporate social responsibility. So finding the list of like America's most ethical companies and creating a band of outreach around that. And for those ones, that's going to be a much tighter campaign. Like I know that like the sales loft is you should have your 21 touches and your 20 days or, or, you know, whatever it is. I like to have mine just a little bit longer than that, but those are still pretty tight campaigns. Like I'll do 15 touches over 30 business days or something of the sort. And then I'll put them on ice after that if they don't respond. Um, But those ones I do like to have that are a little bit tighter because it's like this list just came out and that's why I'm reaching out to you. So I don't know. That wasn't a very clear answer. No, I think Uh, it was actually. (laughs) Okay. The whole theme of this has been customer centric. Yes. (laughs) So a a me centric approach would be, I want to talk to you in the next three weeks and here's, I'm going to engineer this sequence to get what I want out of it. In versus thinking about, well, what's their timeline? When does the conversation make sense? What could I tie it to that's relevant? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I'm I'm never looking for a cookie cutter answer either, you know, because there's so many fears. 22 and a half days. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> this has been a great conversation though. We gotta we gotta bounce here. I do have one question before you take off. Where can people go to connect with you? Yes. And find yourself. I know that you do have like a TikTok and like all of that stuff, but where can people get more Leslie? I do have a TikTok, sales tips talk. I did not think about how hard it would be to pronounce it when I chose my handle, but we're committed. <laughs> uh, so yes, please connect with me on TikTok at sales tips talk. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn every dang day. You can find me at uh, Leslie Vanette's pretty easy there. And I have a playbook, which is super exciting, my Unleashed playbook. So if anybody ever wants more info on that, uh, hit me up and I'd be more than happy to share some details. Well, what's in the playbook? Let's let people know what's in the playbook. Yeah, the playbook. So it's um, seven modules. It's two full modules of LinkedIn. One is just about LinkedIn best practices, like how to build your brand, how to build your profile, how to connect with people. The other one is how to use LinkedIn to get hired faster. There's one that's a leadership module, how to move from IC to manager. And then the other four are just outbound, like B2B outbound best practices. So a lot of the things we talked about today, as well as some of my favorite, favorite tips, like how to replace, I'm sorry, with thank you. And, you know, some of those like really great foundational things that just never get old. All right, that was a fun one with Leslie. The biggest thing that I got from this is what I brought up at the beginning, that unique insight. A lot of times we try to uh, leverage commercial insights from third-party companies, which is great. I'm not saying not to do that. That is also effective. But another thing that you can do is just think about all the clients that your company works with and have they surveyed these clients? Have they found trends across these clients? Is there any trends you see in the clients that you're working with? That's the best information to share that's going to be actionable for the prospects. So appreciate you tuning in. I got one quick favor before you take off. If you enjoy this podcast and you haven't yet, I'd love if you leave it a quick a short review on either iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to the podcast and uh, subscribe, obviously, too. I'd like to keep great guests coming. 
and uh, would like to keep putting this content in front of you if you enjoyed it today. So that's all I got. Thanks for tuning in, spending an hour or so with us, and uh, we'll see you next time.